Well, good morning, church. It's good to see everyone here today. It's good to be back. Uh, long trip. I wouldn't call myself a world traveler, but it was a long trip. And I uh, got our kids moved out there. A little bittersweet flying home, leaving the grandkids there. But uh, sometimes that's the way it goes. And uh, it's part of being in this world, right? Times of separation. And it's only in the, the next world that those things will end. And so, uh, but it's good to be back with you. And uh, um, we're in Matthew again, Matthew chapter 12. And uh, we're going to be reading verses 22 through, 40, uh, through 50, actually. 22 through 50. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be judged, justified, and by your words you will be condemned." Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three nights and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I'll return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, 
and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. When he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading and the proclamation of his word. The title of the message today is called The Point of No Return. There are certain points in life uh, that, that, that we recognize are points of no return. The point of no return is the stage at which it's no longer possible to stop what you are doing and, and, and go back and when its effects cannot now be avoided or prevented. For example, if you're flying a jet across the Pacific Ocean and it has trouble and you're beyond the point of no return, you can't go back to where you started. You have to go to some other origination in order to, to land the, the jet and, and uh, get the trouble fixed. There are a lot of different points of no return in this life, uh, some more serious than others. For example, you can't do something for the first time that you've already done. It's impossible to do that. You can't stop words from coming out of your mouth that you should not have said. You can, you can apologize, you can be forgiven, but you can't unsay them, can you? The point of no return is the place where there are no do-overs. A friend of mine would tell his girls as they were learning to drive that you need to realize that sometimes you don't get do-overs. If you have an accident and you hurt yourself or you hurt someone or someone is killed, you can't undo what you have done. And there are do-overs like this all through life, some more serious than others. Some of the things that you and I have done, we wish we could have had a do-over on, don't we? We wish we could go back and undo them. But we're thankful to the grace of God that, that helps us in those kinds of situations. This morning I want us to think about, are there point of no returns uh, beyond that move people beyond the love and forgiveness of God? Now that's a tough question. It's not really one that I, I would have liked to dealt with on the first Sunday I come back from vacation. But it's where we kind of are and, I, and we need to handle the whole counsel of God. We need to, we need to look at all of scripture. But I want us to think about that. Are there points of no return in life that move people beyond the love and forgiveness of God? Now the scripture warns again and again against persistent unbelief. Persistent unbelief. In the lives of those who persistently and consistently and continually reject the wooing of God's Holy Spirit, there, there can be a line of unbelief whereby that when that that is crossed, a person will never respond to the grace of God. If a person is confronted with the gospel repeatedly and refuses to believe, that person is in great danger. It's not as though God doesn't want them to respond, but they are inching toward the place where they have such stubborn and persistent unbelief that they're not going to believe under any circumstances of life. Sometimes people will say to you and I, well, I'll believe at the end, you know, I'll, do, I'll live whatever I want to live, and at the end I'll get right with God. But that's not how it works. 
when you continue to say no t- to God's Holy Spirit, you, you create a, a hardened heart. And the scripture warns us against hardening our hearts. It says, if you hear his voice today, do not harden your hearts. Isaiah 55, 6 tells us, seek the Lord while he may be found. If God is speaking to you today, if God is leading you to do something today, today is the day to respond. Don't put it off. Because we think we can respond to God whenever we want. But the scripture definitely does not teach that. You must respond to God when God is moving and speaking to you. In the passage we read this morning, Jesus sets a blind man free from demon oppression. And in doing so, heals him of his blindness and his uh, his, uh, inability to speak. And the people saw this a fantastic miracle, and they began to ask the question, could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? Now, the people actually asking in such a way, they expected a negative response. I don't know if they, it seems as you read through Matthew, the opposition to Jesus becomes more and more hardened and more and more intense. And we'll see that as we continue to go through Matthew. But also, they could have asked the question that way because the Pharisees and their, and their supposed spiritual leaders, they didn't believe in Jesus. And they were become uh, more and more uh, vocal in their opposition to Jesus. So maybe they didn't want to make their religious leaders mad. And so they said, could this be? It's kind of expecting a negative answer, but they are open to a positive answer. Um, the Pharisees who were looking on, they heard this question. Uh, they heard this question, and they could not deny the miracle of the man, of the blind man uh, uh, seeing and him being able to speak. They could not deny the miracle. So what did they do? They forcefully began to attack the one doing the miracle. They began to attack Jesus because they did not want the people to believe in Jesus. They were afraid of losing their power, losing their prestige, losing their influence, and people believing in Jesus. Um, And so this good and wonderful act of grace uh, on this man was attacked vociferously by the Pharisees in a most hideous way. The Pharisees said that Jesus was doing this miracle by the power of Beelzebul or Satan. Now Jesus recognized what they were doing in their intense opposition to them. And and he issued a warning to the Pharisees and I think through them to the people of every age. And this warning is this a timeless truth. That persistent... An unchangeable refusal to respond to the Holy Spirit's wooing moves us to the point of no return that will never seek forgiveness. Persistent and unchangeable refusal to respond to the Holy Spirit's wooing moves us to the point of no return that will never seek forgiveness. Now how can people move toward that? That's a line that nobody should move toward. And I believe it's a line that only an unbeliever can move toward. But there are people that are close to the gospel, that hang around the gospel, that that even sometimes indicate a faith, but they never really embraced Jesus. They never really believed. And they are too warned of, of not embracing and believing and responding to the Spirit of God. How can we move toward the point of no return in, in our lives? First of all, People approach the point of no return 
when they deliberately attribute only the good that only the Holy Spirit can do to the forces of darkness. People approach the point of no return when they deliberately attribute the good only the Holy Spirit can do to the forces of darkness. Now the demon-oppressed man who was brought to Jesus was healed. And the people began to ask if Jesus could be the son of David, the promised Messiah. Uh, And the Pharisees had grown so much in their opposition uh, uh, to Jesus. Because Jesus did not do things like they wanted him to. And especially he ignored all their idiotic rules about how to follow God. Because their rules were, were their religion. Their their rules weren't seeking to help others. They weren't seeking to walk with God. Their rules were just keeping the rules. They thought that's how you got right with God. And and so they had so many rules that they laid upon God's law. And Jesus basically disagreed with them and said they weren't interpreting Scripture right. Uh, Their interpretation of the Sabbath and other things they do, Jesus had confronted them in the first part of chapter 12. And so they could not deny the miracle. They could not deny the good done to this man. So they personally attacked Jesus. Um, they could not deny the, the, uh, the message. So basically they attacked the messenger. And they accused Jesus of doing what he did by the power of Satan. They said Jesus cast out demons by the prince of demons. They accused Jesus basically of witchcraft and sorcery. And they said the wonderfully good deed done to this man was done by the power of the enemy. That's a kind of a ridiculous argument, isn't it? Because the enemy never does anything truly good. He never does anything truly good. Now, Jesus dealt directly with this accusation. And I think he did it because he's concerned with those who said it. I think he's warning them that, that in making this accusation, they were getting close to eternal danger. They were so close to stubborn and persistent unbelief that, that they might forever move away the, the forgiveness that they needed to find. And so Jesus forcefully confronted them. His logic was really beyond argument. If a kingdom's divided against itself, that kingdom's going to be destroyed. Uh, no kingdom divided against itself will stand. If Satan, if Satan is casting out Satan, uh, he's divided against himself, and the kingdom's going to his kingdom's going to be destroyed. Uh, Satan was not. Jesus was saying Satan's not going to wage war on himself. Uh, he would not destroy himself. And then Jesus said, "If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, Satan, who do your sons cast them out?" You know, their, their logic was so uh, convoluted. Uh, Jesus said, your sons do this thing. You, they cast out demons and they will be your judges. Jesus said, if it's by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now see, this, this totally messed their version of the kingdom of God up. Because they thought the kingdom of God was a political thing. They thought Jesus would come and destroy all evildoers, and and they thought they were righteous, and so they were going to rule. But no, Jesus came to save sinners. And the kingdom of God is not some political organization. It is a spiritual thing that takes place in the the lives of individuals and in in the community as... as, uh, as, the, as people respond to the, king, to, to the invitation of the Holy Spirit. Matthew, in fact, deliberately uses the phrase kingdom of God. 
if you read Matthew, most of the time when he talks about the kingdom of God, where other gospels use the kingdom of God, he uses the term kingdom of heaven. But here he says, the kingdom of God has come upon you, and he contrasts that with the kingdom of Satan. Because there are two kingdoms. Uh, ultimately, there's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, and God's kingdom has come, and God's kingdom is ultimately going to destroy the, the kingdom of Satan. And Jesus is saying, it's happening right now. They expected the political kingdom, but Jesus pointed to a spiritual kingdom that even was now among them. And then Jesus speaks of entering a strong man's house and binding him and plundering goods. He said, you've got to be stronger than the strong man to do that. Now, Jesus, in fact, there's uh, the definite articles used in the original languages, and he talks about the strong man, and people think, uh, many, many interpreters believe that Jesus is saying the strong man pointing to the devil. And Jesus is saying, I'm stronger than the strong man. I'm stronger than Satan. And the reason I can bind uh, demons, the reason I can cast out demons from people and set them free is because I'm stronger than the enemy himself. Uh, and so then he closes this section and he says, whoever is not with me uh, is against me. You see, you can't remain neutral about Jesus forever. No, I do believe there's some people exploring, thinking about, is this stuff true? And maybe they're moving toward God. But ultimately, you got to decide. You can't be neutral about Jesus forever. You can't be neutral about the kingdom of God. You can't say, well, I'll just put off making a decision like Gamaliel. Remember Gamaliel in the book of Acts? Uh, the, uh, he said, let's just don't make a decision about these apostles. We don't want to do anything that we'll regret. And people look at that and say he was being really wise. I think he was just avoiding making a decision. Uh, you can't be neutral about Jesus forever. You're either moving toward him or away from him. You're either, moving, uh, you're either with him or against him. And the Pharisees in their opposition are showing themselves against Jesus. And so we ask ourselves, are we for Jesus or are we against Jesus? Now, in another place in the scripture, Jesus says, if you're not against me, you're, you're with me. Now, what's that about? Well, that's about if you're looking at someone who is naming the name of Jesus and they don't do things exactly like you, but they're still trying to proclaim Jesus and serve Jesus and live for Jesus. They're with you. They're not against you. Uh you know, we look at people and they do things differently or they conduct worship differently or, or uh, they emphasize something that we wouldn't emphasize and we tend to, to, to say, well, they're not with us. Well, Jesus said, no. If they're naming the name of Jesus, if they're trying to proclaim Jesus, don't make them your enemies. And we've got to be careful about that. If we think we're the only ones serving the Lord and our group is the only people doing what God wants us to do, that's just plain arrogance and pride. That's not right. And so we've got to be careful that we give other believers tr- who try to serve the Lord, who might see things differently, the benefit of the doubt. You know, the scripture says we all see through a glass darkly. Nobody gets it 100% right. Nobody. And so we've got to give others who, who serve Jesus, who name the name of Jesus as the Savior of the world, as the one and only hope of the world. We've got to give people the benefit of the doubt, even if they do things differently. But here Jesus is not talking about looking at others. He's talking about looking at yourself. Are you for me or against me? 
Am I for Jesus or against him? You can't be neutral about Jesus forever. The Pharisees in their opposition are sowing themselves against Jesus. And Jesus warns them against persistent unbelief that causes them to attribute what is clearly the work of the Holy Spirit to Satan. Jesus is saying their words are showing that they're being hardened in unbelief and they're, and they're attributing what clearly God is doing, what clearly the Holy Spirit is doing uh, to the power of the enemy. This kind of spoken, persistent unbelief that deliberately refuses to respond to the Holy Spirit's working and wooings, slanders and blasphemes God's Spirit. Now, now this sin is, a, is a, maybe one of the scariest passages we read in Scripture, right? You read about sin that can be forgiven and that scares you. You may have thought at one time or another you committed this sin. I'm telling you, there was a time when I was a little kid, I'm reading the Bible from the... Boy, did I do that, you know, and scared that I might have done something. This kind of sin is not done in ignorance. It's a kind of sin where someone deliberately, finally uh, says no to God and I'm not going to believe God and I don't believe what I'm seeing God do is done by God. I, you're attributing it to the enemy. It's deliberate. It's, uh, it's uh, intentional. It is, it is saying that what the Holy Spirit is doing, it's, it's attributing that to the enemy himself. It's not a sin of ignorance. It's a sin of those who have heard the truth. It's not necessarily, I'm not talking about people. People can talk all kinds of evil about the Lord and they don't know anything about him, do they? It's about those who understand and kind of come to comprehend the gospel. And then deliberately turn their back on it. None of us can tell when someone else has committed this sin. And I don't think we should even try. Uh, that's not the point. The point was not that Jesus wanted us to look around and try to pick out who's committing the, this sin. The point is to say, don't ever, you and you must encourage those who you love, never to, to continue in persistent, rebellious, stubborn unbelief. Had the Pharisees committed this sin? Maybe some had, but maybe there were others that were coming so close that Jesus issued the severe warning. You know, we have a thought in our day that if you have to, if you have to say something hard to someone or some warning to someone, you don't love them. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you love people and you don't warn them of sin and the danger of unbelief, you don't love them. There's something wrong with our love for people if that's how we see things in life. I'm not saying we condemn people, but, but we've got to be willing to tell people the truth. When people confront us and say, do you really believe Jesus alone is the hope of the world and the way of salvation? We have to say, well, yes, I really believe that. The world wants us to back down. And many people have backed down. But we've got to speak the truth in love. Uh, and we have to be careful to warn people when the scripture warns them. You see, people approach the point of no return when they, they deliberately and stubbornly attribute the good only the Holy Spirit can do to the forces of darkness. But I think there's a second, second thing that people do, a second sign that people do that... Uh, 
point that show that they may be moving toward the point of no return. And that's this. People approach the point of no return when their words reveal an unbelieving heart. Now Jesus said, make the tree good uh, and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. The life and ministry of Jesus had produced exceedingly good fruit. And the only way this could happen was because Jesus is exceedingly good. But they were saying Jesus was bad. And Jesus said that's impossible. He called them a brood of vipers. He said, you're saying what is obviously good is evil. And you're saying that those who produce good are really evil in their hearts. And Jesus saying that cannot happen. A tree, a good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. And then Jesus says, the evil that's in your hearts will ultimately come out of your mouth. You see, ultimately, what you really believe comes out. What is in you comes out. The mouth is just an indicator uh, of what is in your heart, a thermometer, so to speak. It doesn't produce the temperature. A thermometer only reveals the temperature. Uh, a good person produces good deeds and words, and an evil person produces evil uh, deeds and speaks ultimately evil words. And Jesus said, you're going to give an account of every careless or idle word. And that's talking about words kind of spoken. And by your words you'll be justified, and by your words you'll be condemned. Why? Because your words reveal what is in your heart. What is in your heart. When I was uh, between my sophomore and junior years of college, I spent a summer doing uh, resort ministries in the Black Hills of South Dakota. Maybe that's why the Black Hills are still one of my favorite places in the world. And we had a team of uh, six students and a couple of adult sponsors. And we went around and we did vacation uh, backyard Bible clubs and campgrounds. And we had a musical we performed and, uh, and did, uh, performed it at the amphitheater. And in those days, we, we could do that. And then also we did kind of uh, revivals and things during the summer. But there was one young lady on the team that I clashed with. Now, I don't know why I clashed with her. Uh, she was a very nice hard-working team member. She did have a strong personality. Uh, and maybe I was a little intimidated by that. I don't know. But all I know is that I clashed with her. Instead of talking to her about maybe how we should communicate, I began to kind of use sarcasm in dealing with her. Uh, and one day, it became too much for her, and she started to cry. My words had stung her deeply, but my words kind of showed my wrong attitude that I had in my heart toward her. And so I knew I was wrong. I knew I had to go and apologize to her. I also talked about her, about some of the wrong, uh, the differences we had. And uh, I talked to her about I shouldn't have been thinking this way or feeling this way. And I, you know, forgive me for this. Uh, see, my words, what I should have done in the first place was gone to her and talked to her, but I didn't. And so what I was thinking and feeling 
in my life and in my mind came out in my sarcasm. In my sarcasm. My words revealed my heart as young and stupid and stubborn. Because that's what I was at that time. See, your words reveal your heart. Your words reveal your heart. Do your words point to someone that has a deep abiding faith in Jesus? Or do your words reveal a selfishness or a stubbornness or a skepticism? You know, sometimes our word reveals issues with other people. That we need to go to them and seek to revolve, uh, resolve with them. The words of the Pharisees revealed a, a hard and unbelieving heart. What do your words reveal about you? Jesus said your words reveal your heart. And Jesus said you're going to give an account of every idle word. Every idle word. You see, people approach the point of no return when their words reveal an unbelieving heart. But there's something else that reveals uh, approaching the point of no return. And that's this. People approach the point of no return when they demand more evidence when overwhelming evidence is already present. Now, I don't know if what Jesus said scared them or provoked them. But whatever, it caused them to ask for a sign. They asked for a sign. Jesus, we want a sign. Now, think about this. Jesus had already provided them many signs. He healed lepers, something no one in history had ever done. (coughs) He restored the sight of the blind and caused the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. He raised the dead. He fed thousands of people with very few resources. He had already done (coughs) so many signs... What else do you want? What else do you need? (coughs) Excuse me. I think they were asking for a catastrophic nature-altering sign. A catastrophic nature-altering sign. But Jesus said, I'm not going to give that kind of sign to you at at your demand. Uh, there's already more than enough evidence for them to know who Jesus was, but they wouldn't accept the evidence. And even a catastrophic, nature-altering sign would not have been enough. So Jesus said, no sign will be given you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. There would be one nature-altering, catastrophic sign that resembled the sign of Jonah. Now what's Jesus talking about that? Well, Jesus said Jonah himself had served as a sign to the people of Nineveh. Jonah had gone to Nineveh after he'd been spit out of this fish where he had spent three days and three nights. You know, some people believe that Jonah's very physical physical uh, appearance, you know, he was in the fish's belly for three days and three nights. It could have been altered and changed. And maybe the people knew something about that. And when they looked at Jonah, they said, God's, God's, God's working. And so Jonah himself was a sign to them. Uh, He served as a sign that his message was from God. And the Ninevites repented when Jonah preached. That's very interesting. You know, the example Jesus uses, the Ninevites and the Queen of Sheba were Gentiles. They didn't have anything to do, basically, with the people of God. But when someone lesser than the one who was with the Israelites now, Jesus himself, 
came to them, they repented and believed. And Jesus said, you, you know, there's someone greater now. You need to repent and believe. Jesus said that he too would be a sign to them. He would be in the heart of the earth and Jesus uh, would come out of the earth. Jesus would come out of the earth. What is he pointing to? He's pointing to his very physical resurrection. You know, the great sign of the Christian faith is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. If Jesus rose from the dead, then what we preach and believe is true. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, let's go home and watch cooking shows or whatever you want to watch. The truth of the matter is, the resurrection of Jesus is the sign. And it's one of the most, uh, if you look at the evidence for it, uh, the witnesses of people, and all of that, it's, it's, it's one of the things that you can study. You can't know for sure, but you can look at the evidence and say, it sure looks pretty convincing that Jesus rose from the dead. And so Jesus said he himself would be the sign. He would come out of a tomb never to, to die again. Do you want to know if the gospel is true? The one who rose from the dead, never to, to die again, proves it's true. So Jesus' resurrection is a sign even today. And so the question is, will you believe the one who rose from the dead? They had enough signs. They would receive one more final sign. Would they believe? You know, oftentimes people throw up intellectual smoke screens to hide unbelief. It's not always true. Um, but sometimes it's just an excuse because they don't want to explore. They don't want reasons to believe. They don't want evidence that Jesus uh, rose from the dead. You know, if you, if you do Facebook, you see these arguments from people. And there are some people that always present arguments, but they never want to listen to what anybody says. They never want to listen to uh, a, a truly honest intellectual discussion. Uh, they just want to be belligerent. Now, we do need to seek to give an answer to people who, who honestly have questions about why we believe in Jesus. But I want you to know, sometimes people with those questions, they don't want to believe. They just want to argue. Sometimes you and I, when we're, when we're talking about stuff, maybe it's with our spouse or maybe it's with our family or maybe it's with our friends. Sometimes we're not, we're not listening to what they say. We just want to win the argument, Right? we got to be careful about that attitude. And there are people, especially some people, who continually throw up these kind of smoke screens. And they demand evidence when all the evidence in the world will not be enough for them. People approach the point of no return when they demand more evidence than uh, when overwhelming evidence is already present. There's one more sign I see in this passage of approaching the point of no return, and that's this. People approach the the point of no return when they have multiple opportunities to respond to God's Spirit, but simply ignore His wooing. Simply ignore His wooing. Now Jesus said, if an unclean spirit moves out of a person but finds no rest... He decides to return to where he came from. And it's like an empty house that's swept in an order and unoccupied. If that unreturned spirit comes in, uh, uh, that demonic spirit comes in and sees that place unoccupied, he's going to come 
And he's going to bring more, more seven spirits more evil than himself and reoccupy the person. And the state of the last person is worse than the first. And Jesus says, it will be with this evil generation. Now, the truth is, it's, more reform's not enough. It's not enough to change how you live and to decide to live in a moral way. See, we need to fill our lives with Jesus. He needs to be, we need to commit ourselves to living and following him. Uh, more reform is not enough. Just being delivered from some uh, oppression or addiction is not enough. You need to give your life to Christ and begin to live and follow him. And so, but Jesus is not, I don't know if he's necessarily talking about just an individual here. He's talking about the, the, uh, the bulk of this whole uh, generation. He says it's going to be worse for this evil generation. Because I came and I showed them the way. And I loved them. And I offered myself to them. But most rejected and refused me. Many didn't, they didn't actually consciously refuse or consciously reject, but they just ignored Jesus. You know, the truth of the matter is, if you just ignore Jesus, you just ignore his wooing, you you are in as great a danger as if you consciously and deliberately rejected him. The scripture says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So we have to, when God speaks, we need to respond. We need to respond. You know, as I'm preaching this passage, and you guys know how I preach, you know, I don't, I don't jump around, I don't, I don't go from my favorite topic to my favorite topic. This would not be my favorite topic, to be real truthful with you today. But I want to preach to you the whole word of God. There's probably nobody here... I don't, I don't think that's close to the point of no return in their spiritual lives. But there is a word for those who are around the truth but never truly embrace the truth. You see, if the Holy Spirit's wooing you, please say yes and give your life to Christ. Persistent and unchangeable Refusal to respond to the Holy Spirit's wooing moves us to the point of no return. And when you, when you pass that point, it's not that God won't forgive you, but you will never want to be forgiven. You don't think you need to be forgiven. If the Holy Spirit's wooing you, respond to Him today. If you have not believed, I beg you today to embrace Jesus. Give your life to Him. And find the greatest life you can ever find. I am not inviting you to a bad life. Jesus is not saying, come to me and it's going to be terrible. Now I'm saying it's not easy to follow Jesus. But I'm telling you, following Jesus is better than not following him. He's the best thing that could ever, he's the best that could ever happen to any of us. To live for him and love him and serve him and follow him. There's no sin that he will not forgive. If you come to him, no one who will come to him is beyond his forgiveness. And so the Holy Spirit woos you today if you do not know him to believe in him and be saved. That's where we're at. 
what will you do? I'm going to close just just a little bit different today because I, I want us to think about his great love and forgiveness. Because there's no sin that you've ever committed that he can't forgive you for if you'll bring it to him. He will forgive any sin. Will you bring it to him? I want to read to you just a few words of a song called His Mercy is More. What love could remember, no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into the sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What patience would wait as we constantly roam. What father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Let's pray together. If you've been prompted, if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, you need to talk to someone today about what He said to you. Uh, Damon and Carla are going to be at the back, uh, at the bottom of the stairs. And if you need to talk to someone uh, about anything, maybe it's not anything I said, maybe it's something in Sunday school, maybe it's something that the Lord's been dealing with you through the week, or just something you want someone to pray with you about, they'll be back there to help you and to pray with you. Father, I thank You, Lord, that you reached us and you saved us. And Lord, I thank you that you showed us your great mercy. And Lord, I pray for anyone here that's, Lord, never responded to you. I pray today that they would say yes to you. Lord, if you're speaking to them, if, if, the, if you're telling them they need to believe and be saved, if you're inviting them to be a part of who you are, God, I pray that they would say yes. I pray that as Christians, Lord, we look at our lives, we think about our words, we continually examine ourselves, that as we look at what we say and what we do, that that would help us to know if we're walking with you like we should or we need to be closer to you. Lord, just move in our lives, draw us to yourself, in Jesus' name, amen.